You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. Here's Nate. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 begins with Paul's statement, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now, just a reminder, chapter 2 concluded with Paul beginning to talk to the Corinthian church about two different types of human beings. He announced that there was a natural person in humanity. The natural person, he said, could not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Uh, They were not converted. They did not have the Spirit inside of them. And so as the Spirit tried to communicate to their hearts, they would not receive the things of the Spirit because they were natural. They were not regenerate. They were not alive to the things of the Spirit. But then Paul also talked about a second type of person, those who are spiritually discerned. And the spiritual person, apparently, is able to judge all things. In other words, they cannot be appreciated, discerned, or understood by the natural person. They are a spirit-led believer who understands the spiritual truths that the Holy Spirit has mined from the heart and thoughts of God the Father himself and has applied into the lives of his people. But here, what Paul seems to do is shift the focus back to the Corinthians. Uh, They were not natural people. In other words, they were Christians. That's who he's writing to. They were believers with the Spirit of God inside of them. But Paul fell short or came short of calling them spiritual people. They were not natural, but they certainly were not a group of people who were spiritual. That's why he says, I could not address you as spiritual people but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. He says, I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? So here, Paul clearly gives a rebuke to the Corinthian church. It is interesting, as he unfolds this rebuke, he gives them a familial title, a title of affinity and love when he calls them brothers. Even in Paul's rebuke, there is love that is pumping from his heart. And he announces to them that he could not speak to them as he desired, you know, spiritual people for their carnality got in the way of the message. They were still, he said, operating as infants in Christ. Now, when Paul initially came to Corinth, The people were naturally infants in Christ and were not ready for the solid food of stronger doctrines and practices. But here, as he writes to them later on, unfortunately, they were still, he announces, not ready, still of the flesh. 
Now, if we could just pause for a moment and think about the three types of people that Paul refers to in this passage. You have the natural person in verse 14 of chapter 2, the spiritual person that I alluded to in verse 15 of chapter 2, and here, the person of the flesh, or as some translations put it, the carnal man or the carnal woman. Now, if you're a believer, you can only really be two of these three. You cannot be the natural person. That has changed in your life. You were the natural man or woman, but now you have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. So you are either the spiritual or the carnal, the spiritual or the fleshly. Now, in the New Testament, the flesh speaks of a few different ideas. One idea of the flesh is that of the physical world or the human body or humanness or the seat of sin. And here, that's how Paul is using it. The flesh as the seat of sin. That's why he tells us in Galatians 5, verse 16, to walk in the spirit so that we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do you see carnality is a fundamental cause of division in the church that's why paul is addressing it here in this moment and announcing that he could not speak to these people you know the kind of person that comes up to a pastor and says if you don't change this we're leaving that is so often carnality flowing from a human's heart. What is a person of the flesh like? Well, according to Paul in this passage, number one, they must be addressed as infants in Christ, just babies in Jesus. They, they are still in that lack of maturity, that infantile state. Number two, they follow their flesh rather than the Holy Spirit. Number three, they are not ready for solid food, but must instead drink milk. Perhaps this means that the only doctrines they can handle are the mere basics in Christianity. They need to move past those into maturity, into sanctification. One of the marks of deeper maturity and solid meat that Paul gave to the Philippian church was the solid meat of putting aside selfish ambition and conceit, but in humility counting others more significant than yourselves. That was one way that Paul sought to move the Philippian church beyond mere milk. Number four, Paul said that they allow attitudes like jealousy and strife to drive them behaving in a merely human way. You see, rather than humility and concern for others and the way of the heavenly man, the carnal person gets caught up in the common human attributes or pitfalls of jealousy, strife, human division. And number five, because of that, they allow factions to develop. Some saying, I follow Paul, and some saying, I follow Apollos. Look, we must watch out for the marks of a carnal Christian inside of ourselves. Uh, we must make sure that we feed the Spirit rather than feeding the flesh. Now, Paul 
moves on in his letter by writing for a moment about these messengers that they had begun to form camps about and around. You see, the Corinthians focused too much time on men when God was their source of life and blessing. So in verse 5, Paul asks, What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord has assigned to each. Now, in asking that question and making that statement, uh, Paul answers the question right off the bat. You know, what is Apollos and what is Paul? Well, servants is what they are. You see, the Lord gave his assignments and Paul and Apollos were merely vessels or conduits of the message. You see, the Corinthians had not believed in Paul, and they'd not believed in Apollos, but they'd believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul and Apollos were merely fulfilling the roles Christ had given to them. I find this utterly refreshing in an era where the messenger is so often exalted and honored and praised, and different movements are attached to by believers. And there is such arrogant, prideful condescension about other groups that are still in Christ, still loving the Lord, but maybe not seeing the world exactly as you do. Well, Paul just says, look, what's Apollos? What's Paul? We're servants through whom you believed. And then he says, as the Lord assigned to each. That means that Christ had given to them an assignment, and they were trying to be faithful with the assignment that God had given to them. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5 in the Holman Christian Standard Bible says, What then is Apollos and what is Paul? They are servants through whom you have believed, and each has the role the Lord has given. You see, God has given to the church, Ephesians 4.11, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers, and Apollos and Paul had received their roles from the Lord. That's why Paul goes on to say in the letter, verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. You see here, Paul is going to use the metaphor of the church as a field. Now, thinking about the church of Corinth as a field, Paul had at one time planted that Corinthian church. Well, Apollos, who had come after and watered the church for a season, but it was God who continually gave the growth. And of course, the story of these two men going to Corinth is found in Acts chapter 18. So Paul says, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. What was Paul's conclusion? Well, conclusion number one was this. The planter and the waterer are not anything but only God who gives the growth. You see, all the credit, all the glory, all the honor goes to God himself who gives the growth. In fact, even the planter and the waterer have received their message from God, their power from God, their ability from God, their opportunity from God. Even the planter and the waterer have to give credit to the God who gives the growth. Number two, the laborers 
no matter their role, are one. That's what Paul says. He who plants and he who waters are one. They do not compete with one another, but they complement one another. And his third conclusion was that the laborers will each receive wages according to their labor. Now, we'll talk about that in a moment, but that was Paul's conclusion. For, he says in verse 9, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Here now, Paul is going to change his metaphor. He's talked for a moment about the Corinthian church as God's field, but now he'll turn to speak of them as God's building, specifically in reference to the temple, as we'll see once we get to verse 16. You see, the local church there in Corinth, just as the local church everywhere is, is a temple in which God's Spirit lives. And so Paul refers to them as a building. And he says, look, we are God's fellow workers in this field and in this building. This is amazing. Paul and Apollos were certainly fellow workers with one another, but Paul seems to suggest that they were together fellow workers with God. Now, he goes on to say in verse 10, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, here Paul makes reference to the special calling that he had from Jesus. That's why he says in verse 10, according to the grace of of God given to me. You see, you might remember when Paul received his salvation from Christ, uh, he received that commission that he would be an instrument to the Jews, to the Gentiles, and also to kings and those in authority. And Paul remembered that special calling from the Lord. There was a special grace that God had given to him. He knew it to be grace, a Christ endowment of divine power for the task. He'd felt it. He'd lived it. He'd seen the effectiveness of God in it. Not everyone was called to be what Paul was to the world at that time. And even up to our present day, we are still receiving from the ministry of this man. And he announces that he laid a foundation like a skilled master builder and that someone else is building now upon it. You see, Paul had spent 18 months laying the foundation of the Corinthian church. Others would build on that foundation. He would not stay there forever. You see, that is true of Paul in Corinth, but it is also true of the apostles and the church. If you think about it, what Paul is saying about Corinth is true for all of time. The apostles giving us the word of God, the apostles' doctrine, laid a foundation. And we are to build upon that foundation. That's why Paul says in verse 10 and 11, let each one take care how he builds upon it. You see, there is no other foundation than the one already laid down, which is Jesus Christ. You see, some did come, perhaps even already in Paul's day, to Corinth, preaching another gospel 
than the foundation of Jesus Christ. In fact, when Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, he announced that he was concerned that if someone came and proclaimed another Jesus than the one that he had proclaimed, or if they received a different spirit from the one that they had received, or they, they would accept a different gospel from the one they had already accepted, and that they would put up with it readily enough. And then he said, Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. So apparently there were some who were coming in saying, Paul was an apostle, but we are super apostles. That might have been Paul's tongue-in-cheek title for them, but it, it was a group of people who were claiming authority over the word of God. They were taking the foundation of Jesus Christ and the apostles' doctrine, and they were perverting that foundation. Look, no one, including any pope, any agency, any church, any denomination, any system of doctrine, no one gets to override the foundation that the apostles laid down in Holy Scripture. And unfortunately, all too often, we forget the beautiful foundation that has already been laid down, Jesus Christ. Now, Paul says in verse 12, remember he had announced that he was God's fellow worker and that there was a reward. Each one, verse 8, receives his wages according to his labor. Well, here he talks about those wages. Verse 12, he says, Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, here, Paul ventures into the subject, really thinking of himself, and Apollos, but he ventures into the subject of eternal rewards. He announces, number one, that some, verse 12, will build with gold and silver and precious stones. These are things done in life that are of eternal significance. They're lasting, gold, silver, precious stone. Others will build, verse 12, with wood and hay and straw. Uh, the things of their lives are not of any eternal significance. And in verse 13, he announces that the fire of this time called the day will disclose and reveal the work each one has done. Now, the Bible speaks often of the day. It's called the day of the Lord. It's mentioned 19 times in the Old Testament, but as we just read, it is also mentioned in the New Testament. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 2, that we are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. The day of man, when the day of the Lord comes, will be replaced. The day of the Lord will replace the day of man. And marks of the day of the Lord are interesting to consider. Some of the marks will be that God's involvement in world affairs will more directly and dramatically be seen than 
at any other time since the earthly ministry of Jesus. According to Isaiah chapter 2 and chapter 13 and other passages in Isaiah, it will be a day where God's wrath is revealed. Other nations, according to Ezekiel 30 and Obadiah 15, will be involved in the day of wrath. Uh, uh, Romans chapter 11 teaches that Israel will specifically be involved. There will be in this day an Elijah-like forerunner, Malachi 4 verse 5. There will be, 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3, a worldwide rebellion. And 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3 and 4, teaches that there will be some type of antichrist figure who's involved in this worldwide rebellion. Let me, in fact, just read that passage. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3 and 4, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And there will be dramatic signs in heaven, Joel 2 and Matthew 24. So that day, according to Hebrews 10.25, is drawing near, so we should gather together. We should be with one another in the body of Christ, encouraging one another. And so Paul here alluding to this day of the Lord. But he goes on in talking about rewards to tell us in verse 14 that there is a reward for those on that day who have a work that survives. Now, that is not a reference to salvation, that if you have good works here in life, then maybe you'll experience the reward of salvation. No, it seems that Paul is announcing that there is a reward for service. And, verse 15, that if anyone's work is burned up, they'll suffer loss, but they themselves will be saved. You see, fire is often associated with Christ's second coming. And in that second coming, one thing that his fire will do will consume that in our lives that was of no eternal consequence. And if our lives had no eternal significance, we ourselves will be saved as though through fire, but there will be no real reward in our lives. Now, I don't understand completely how rewards will work in heaven. It seems that heaven and God's presence will be reward enough. Uh, However, there does seem to be some kind of eternal significance to our rewards. Frankly, I think that one part of the reward system of God will be the way in which the millennial kingdom of Christ, I know that it's not fashionable to believe in a 1,000-year literal rule and reign of Jesus here on earth before the new heavens and the new earth, but I believe that that is the way that uh, history is going to unfold. And it seems that part of God's plan is to distribute leadership and blessings on earth during that time according to the way in which we lived our lives today. Now he goes on to say in verse 16, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Here, uh, Paul uh, uses for the first time 
of ten times in this letter the phrase, do you not know? There were things the Corinthian church just needed to discover and, and believe. And he here says, do you not know that you're God's temple? You know, Paul is going to revisit this concept on a personal level in a few chapters, but here he's not talking about individuals, but about the entire Corinthian church. He's exhorting them not to defile the temple of God. He's going to come back to this subject in dealing with sexual immorality individually, but here he's saying, look, you are the whole temple. Uh, this, this body of believers is the temple of God. And if anyone, verse 17, destroys the temple, God will destroy him. Here, there is a third person, not the one with eternal works or temporal works, but destructive works. This person does not have lasting works, nor are his works merely burnt up, but his works have destroyed God's church. And so Paul gives a real warning here. You know, God's temple, you should not destroy it. These are God's people. Now Paul is going to spend a little time describing his ministry as we close out this chapter. He says in verse 18, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God, for it is written, and this comes from Job 5, verse 13, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, from Psalm 94, 11, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. You see, ministers like Paul and Apollos should avoid self-deception. That's why he said, let no one deceive himself. Uh, that would mean that you had become a fool. No, you see, ministers should avoid self-deception and continue to study and proclaim the folly of God and reject the wisdom of this world and this age. You see, servants of Christ must recognize the wisdom of God and recognize that it will contradict the wisdom of the age. It, to become wise in God means that you are going to become a fool to the world. And so we must remember the thoughts of the wise are futile. Now, he says in verse 21, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. You see, they were tempted to and were engaged in boasting in men. Churches like the one in Corinth should not boast in the messenger, for they have so much more than a messenger. Paul announced to them, all are yours in Christ. You have Paul, you have Apollos, you have Cephas, you have the world and life and death, you have the present and you have the future. And he says, and you are Christ's and Christ's is God's. You see, my goal as a pastor is to be a messenger who just shows people everything that they have in Jesus Christ. There's a passage that I've always loved from the Gospel of Matthew. It's slightly confusing, and to be honest, I'm not entirely sure if I've got the application of it correct, but Jesus said to the crowds, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. My goal is never to give new messages. 
but to go to the treasure of the kingdom of heaven and pull out the messages that God has ordained from his word and show people those new and old messages, to pull out the new, to pull out the old, to to show the fresh, beautiful truths and the way they apply into our new cultural issues and all of that, and to show the freshness and beauty of God's word and the oldness of it as well. Because the reality is, it's not the messenger, but it's the message what we have in Christ that is so beautiful and wonderful. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.